present our, our view, our argument, and then uh, maybe we'll have some brief rebuttals, and then we'll open up the floor for questions. Sound good? Okay. Okay, uh, I'm Bryce Sibley. I'm the pastor at Our Lady of Wisdom right down the road. I've been there about 10 years now, and uh, really excited. I'm, I'm representing the position of belief in God. Uh, <laughs> the last time we did this was seven years ago, so I'm really excited to be back. Uh, yes. And uh, I'm Dr. Rick Swanson, I'm a carpenter of political science, but I actually was very religious when I was younger and went exploring a lot of religions throughout my lifetime and I studied religion and politics, and so that's why I'm actually in this team, even though I'm not officially a philosopher or officially a dealer. <laughs> so, I want to, so I want to thank you uh, all for coming here tonight. Uh, I know I really appreciate taking your time out to be here. I want to first just sort of set the stage for tonight. I want to point out that as you should probably all realize that today we sadly live in a very toxic political environment. Civil discourse seems to be rare at the moment. Too many politicians and even ordinary people seem to think that if someone disagrees with you, they're not just mistaken, they are evil and your enemy. But that's a false choice. But one of the purposes of us being here today is to show that you can disagree and even disagree about important things and still be civil with each other. You can agree to disagree. And so as someone who studies politics, if you don't have civil disagreement, this is dangerous for a society. If you look around the world, when you see that people lose trust that if they lose an election, that their opponents aren't just mistaken, that their opponents are evil and out to get you, then you don't accept the outcomes of elections, at least the mass civil unrest, and even civil war. So it's really important that we have the ability to engage in civil discourse and civil disagreement. And to help you with that perspective, keep a couple things in mind. First, no one ever believes they're doing the wrong thing or that they believe a mistaken thing. Everyone always believes that what they believe is correct and what they're doing is right. And so if you think someone is mistaken, the solution is not to hate them or be angry at them. The solution is to say, uh, to approach them in a loving manner and just to say, well, let me understand your, your position and maybe uh, let, you share, let me share with you my position and why I disagree with what you're doing. So to share requires understanding and non-judgmental communication. And moreover, no one is ever right about everything. The person you strongly disagree with is probably right about something, and you're wrong about it. And so try to keep an open mind when you meet someone who disagrees with you. That's just good human decency and how we learn and grow and mature in wisdom. So you can be friendly with people you disagree with, and more than that, you can be friends. All of us up here consider ourselves friends of each other. We've hung out before, and if we didn't have other plans, like right after this, we'd be going out for a beer together. And so, <laughs> um, my wife has other plans. <laughs> so, so tonight we're going to have a friendly discussion amongst friends, and I encourage all of you to have the same approach, uh, to listen and empathize with each other so that we can better understand each other. There are seats up here. 
uh, if you don't have an opinion about which political candidate you support or which uh, football team you're rooting for in the Super Bowl, you can say you're agnostic about that. So everyone's agnostic about a lot of things. And even if you believe you're certain about something, so even if you're a theist or an atheist and you believe you're 99.99% certain <coughs> of, the, of the, you know, the truth of your belief, well, if you're honest, you're going to admit that you're only 99.99% certain. There's still a little 0.01 degree of uncertainty that you could be wrong. So really, everyone is agnostic. It's just that someone who calls them agnostic, calls himself agnostic, is just a little more agnostic than everyone else. It's just the degrees of agnosticism. And so, the most important point I want to make here is that it's okay to not know. It's okay to be unsure. Life is uncertainty and ambiguity. Successful, successfully navigating life often requires making decisions in the face of very limited knowledge. Should I take this job? Should I move to this location? Should I marry to this person? Marry this person? Should I have children? These are huge decisions, and we don't know the future, and so all we can do is make the best choices we can given the limited information we have as humans. And so we do this all the time. And the way I look at it is if there are any good, decent, fair-minded beings that rule some afterlife, then we have nothing to worry about if we live a good life here on Earth. They wouldn't be petty if they're decent. They wouldn't be petty and punish us simply for not believing that they in particular existed, especially given we have no solid reasons to believe that any particular beings exist. And if they're wicked, evil, unjust beings that rule the afterlife, well then A, they're not worthy of our respect or obedience, and B, it doesn't matter if we believe in them or do what they want or not anyway, because they're probably just sadists and will make us suffer anyway. So I like to follow what I call the agnostics wager. The best choice in the face of not knowing is simply to be a decent person and hope that there is an afterlife, <clears throat> that those beings that rule the afterlife are good and decent and fair-minded, because only wicked beings which punish someone for having reasonable doubt and uncertainty. So in conclusion, I think the most reasonable approach to life and religion in the afterlife is to say we don't know, and it's okay that we don't know. Just enjoy life, live and let live, respect each other, make the most of our limited time on this earth, and try to make the best decisions we can with the limited information we have. That's all that can be reasonably asked of anyone. Thank you. What? You just quoted Don Jersey.
So that's the rough idea, I think, of what uh, most theists uh, hold God is. All kinds of issues there about you know getting into the details about what those different characteristics amount to, but that's the rough idea, and that may be enough for our purposes here, or at least my purposes. Um, what I'm going to present is a version of uh, what's called the evidential argument regarding evil. It's uh, a version of a very old problem called the problem of evil, uh, which begins with the observation that sometimes bad things happen. Okay? And uh, a certain, uh, I'm concerned here with a certain group of bad things. People do bad things all the time, uh, set that aside. There are what are called natural evils that people don't have anything to do with, they can't cause. Uh, things like uh, natural disasters or accidents, uh, earthquakes, floods, fires caused by lightning, being hit by lightning, that result in all kinds of bad things, all kinds of harm and suffering. Uh, there are threats from animals and insects, uh, people getting eaten alive by tigers and things like that every now and then, stung by wasps or, or, or bugs that just get under your skin, it's like, ah, or whatever. Right. Um, uh, there, there are lots of diseases that are natural evils, right? Leprosy, cancer, pneumonia, schizophrenia. There are genetic defects that occur, such as blindness, deafness, children born without limbs, born with severe deformities, and so on. And none of these, what I'm calling natural evils, are the result of human free will, right? They occur in nature quite independently of us. Occasionally, some goods come out of those evils, right? Uh, you've got a, a flood in, in New Orleans, and a bunch of people are heroic, and they go out and they help people out, and that's a great thing. That's an awesome thing. But presumably, it's not the case that more good than bad comes out of those events, typically, right? It would have been better, I think we could all say, if, if the flood hadn't occurred at all, right? And, and people weren't kicked out of their homes and so on. Um, Certainly not in every case does more good come out of evil. Um, there seem to be, in other words, evils that we might call pointless evils. Uh, and an evil is pointless if it meets one of two conditions. Either no greater good comes out of it, either no greater good comes out of it, or God would have the power to get that good without that evil. Okay. Uh, outside of that, uh, uh, evils, you know, if either of those conditions are met or both, the evil is pointless from the point of view of an evil that God would permit, right? Uh, the idea, roughly, very roughly, being that, well, he's perfectly good, so he doesn't want evil. He's all powerful, so he can prevent evil. He's all knowing, so he knows how to prevent evil. <laughs> so why evil? Okay. Particularly why natural evils? Well, this, of course, raises the question of what good and evil are. And this is a, a, a large question in ethics, but uh, as Kant pointed out, pointed out a long time ago in the 18th century, we all, if we're vaguely normal at least, have some idea of what's right or wrong, good or bad, right? Uh, torturing innocent children for entertainment, bad, right? Uh, helping a, a person across the street, good, all else being equal, and so on. We make moral judgments like this all the time. We rely on them. We rely on them to make judgments about whether or not, for example, uh, an apparent uh, command of God is a real one. If someone you know, takes a gun and, and, and walks into some building and starts shooting people, and they say, God asked me to do this, 
We don't believe them, right? We, uh, why not? Why not take everyone's word? Well, uh, uh, presumably God is good, so he wouldn't do something like that. Right? And we can know that, right? And that's why we, uh, you know, put such people in mental institutions or prisons rather than worshiping them as heroes and, uh, you know, uh, honoring them. Um, when Pat Robertson claimed that the people of Haiti deserved to die in an earthquake because their ancestors 200 years ago made a deal with the devil, I would hope we could recognize that that isn't the case, right? Uh, especially since 96% of the people in Haiti are Christian, right? Um, imagine you've led a, a saintly, happy, good life. You've done everything that you believe God wants you to do, and you die. And uh, uh, God, who turns out to be red and have horns, tells you that although he promised you heaven for leading the perfect Christian life, he's flipped a coin, and on that basis has decided you will spend eternity in hell. Is that at all plausible? Well, <coughs> I would hope not, if you're a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, you look at that and say, well, God would never do that because God is a decent being, he's an honest being, he's a good being, and he wouldn't do that sort of thing. He wouldn't be evil like that, right? These are the kinds of moral judgments that I'm appealing to you in making this argument. Very commonsensical, I think uncontroversial moral judgments. That's what the problem of evil is based on. So here's the basic idea of the problem of evil. Uh, suppose, of my own free will, I'm walking down a, uh, uh, in a forest someday, right, and it's, it's frozen. Uh, over it's winter, and in some places they have this thing called winter. And it gets really cold, and white stuff goes on the ground and everything, and, and ponds get frozen over, right? So suppose, suppose we're in a situation like that, and there's nobody else around except a small child, maybe three or four years old, that's playing on the ice of a pond, right? And as I'm walking by, I notice that the uh, uh, ice is broken, and the child has slipped into the pond and is in the process of drowning. And suppose I know that I could very easily save this child, right? All I would have to do, there's absolutely no risk to me whatsoever. All I would have to do as I'm walking down my uh, forest path is, uh, as I'm walking past, lean over, pick up the kid, set him over here, and then the kid will be fine and I can keep on my walk. But suppose I choose not to do this. I say, I don't feel like it. Too bad, kid, you drowned. Right? What sort of person would that be? I presume you would, you would say that would be a pretty lousy person, a pretty bad person, right? An evil person? Well, the point of the problem of evil is that God, if he exists, would be to us as I was in that story to the child. Could easily prevent all kinds of pointless evils, but does not bother to. Which means there isn't a perfectly good, all-powerful, all-knowing being out there. That's the basic idea of the argument. So the argument, it's put in premise and conclusion form, as logicians like to do. It goes something like this. Premise one, God would prevent the occurrence of pointless natural evils. Premise two, there are pointless natural evils, and you could list thousands of them. Uh, conclusion, there does not exist an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good God. Right? The claim that God would prevent the occurrence of pointless evils, natural evils, seems to follow from his nature of being all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly good. Okay. Uh, that there exist examples of pointless evils, well, we can, you know, 
we read about them daily in the news. To give you just one example, um, suppose a, a, a lightning bolt uh, lands in a forest and starts a fire. Right? And in this uh, fire is a, a small fawn, which we could call Bambi. Right? And Bambi, rather than escaping the fire, gets trapped in the fire, gets burned over 85% of her body, and lays there, not dying immediately, but slowly dying in agonizing pain as she is aware of maggots eating her body. Right? Um, that sort of thing, unfortunately, happens all the time. Uh, and I would submit that it's a pointless evil, right? That if there were a God out there, a God could prevent that. He could have had scared Bambi so that she left the forest. He could have made the lightning hit 100 yards to the right. Uh, all kinds of things. He could have made the universe in a different way. All kinds of things. An all-powerful, all-knowing being that wants good could do. So that would seem to be a pointless evil. Another example, right? A, a natural disaster, an earthquake or something, strikes a crowded city and kills 50,000 people. Right? I don't think it's plausible to claim that there's some good out there that justifies that kind of slaughter of people. We don't believe that when it comes down to it. That if we did, if we thought, hey, isn't this great? Scott Fried Wilhelm Leibniz argued. Isn't this great that these 50,000 people died in this earthquake? We, we try to create more natural disasters to get all those wonderful things that come out of them. Right? Uh, but we don't. I think we recognize that these evils are pointless and bad. And so I think that's a good reason for thinking that an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good God does not.
recourse to a different sort of argument. One that is based, I believe, in pure philosophy and pure reason. I believe that our mind can look at reality and come to know and derive certain truths, including the existence of God. Now, I am not going to be talking about any of the qualities of God or any of his traits or the secondary characteristics. I'm here to demonstrate simply that God exists. I do so by taking some pretty complex arguments and hopefully reducing it where it's understandable. Beginning with my water bottle. This water bottle right here, I think most of us can see, is not, is not floating in the air, but is, let's say, maybe about three feet above the ground. What is causing that bottle to be three feet up the above the ground? Well, observable, we can see that it's the table doing that. The table is sort of actualizing this potential the bottle has to be three feet above the ground. Without the table, the bottle is going to fall. Then you could go in this line of causality and say, well, what is causing this table to stand up? Well, it's going to be the stage here. The stage is allowing the table to be here, which is allowing this to take its uh, proper position here as three feet above the ground. And we can continue going further in a chain to get to the foundation of the building, to get to the earth and to all these other things that will keep this, or keeping this above the ground. There is a chain of causality. And this is the basis for my argument. But I want you to notice something, because many people, when it comes to using something as this, if you see where I'm going, I want you to understand I'm making a chain of causality that is not linear, but hierarchical. A lot of people will say, oh, well, Father, you're saying that the Bible exists, and Bible exists because somebody produced it, and then that, that person had parents, and that person had grandparents, and we can go all the way to the Big Bang, and that's where the creation starts. It's not what I'm arguing at all, and it's not at all the traditional argument of philosophers for the existence of God. Because the truth is, in that linear chain, we could go back into infinity. Is it quite possible, as many of the philosophers, including even St. Thomas Aquinas, posited that the world could have been infinite. So we know, we believe that there is the Big Bang, it's a precise moment that creation came into existence. But what if it was the remnant of another universe that contracted and expanded again? So we're not making a hierarchical, and we're not making a linear argument, but rather an hierarchical one. And so we can take this thing, looking at it in the bottle standing up, to existence. Let's look at my existence, your existence. I am in existence right now. I am alive. But what is sustaining me in existence in this present moment? Well, again, I'm not a biology major. Say that it's the heart pumping blood to my body. My heart would stop pumping blood. I would cease in existing as a living creature. And so my existence is contingent upon the beating of my heart. Well, there's the beating of my heart as a reality exists in the world, contingent upon neurons in the brain firing electrical signals that make the heart pump. Well, what's making that happen? And we can go down to an atomic and a subatomic level. We can get down to the most essential thing and train that back as keeping me into existence right now. 
But all of those things exist within the mystery box, within creation. They're all contingent being. So the question is, logically, folks like Aristotle and other reputable philosophers will say, that demands that there has to be something outside of the system and above the system that is the uncaused cause, that is the unmoved mover, that is sustaining creation, the smallest level up to the biggest level, in existence in the present moment. Because if you say that the smallest thing or any aspect within that hierarchical chain is necessary being, well then it contradicts what we believe about the contingent nature of reality in itself. And so who would be or what would be that uncaused cause? The argument is going to be God. Now, as we'll see when I start make my rebuttal, could it be an evil God? Could it be a nefarious God? Well, we need to look later at the qualities of what that God would be. But from a philosophical perspective, the fact that that box exists, the fact that this exists, if you follow it back in a hierarchical way, in the present moment, there has to be something that exists outside of the system that's sustaining it all in existence. That is the basic Aristotelian argument. It get much more complicated, but I like to present from a philosophical perspective that we believe that God's existence as this higher power is necessary. But the truth is, and I'm going to agree with Dr. Swanson here, that it's still, well, I can't agree with you, that it still takes faith that as a believer, can't see God, he exists outside of science. And that faith is not easy. It's reasonable, but it's not easy. Nobody, whether it be the Pope or Mother Teresa or the holiest person, faith doesn't come easy, particularly if you use your reason. Now, I want to present a story that some of you may have heard got from someone else that I used before from the famous Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. Martin Buber, in the 20th century, told the story of this very enlightened atheistic intellectual who went to debate this Jewish rabbi. And all of his arguments lined up. He was a follower of the Enlightenment. And that Jewish rabbi was in his room pacing back and forth, reading this big book, the, 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 the Torah, meditating on the word of God. And before that young man could say anything, the, the rabbi stopped and looked at him and said, perhaps it's all true. Perhaps it's all true. And the young man was shaking to his core because he understood the truth of what the man said. Is that no matter how much we say, God doesn't exist. There's the chance, even if it's 0.1%, that he does exist. Even the atheist has to admit there's a little room to be wrong. And as Dr. Swanson said, even the theist has to admit that there is going to be this little room for doubt. Perhaps the atheist, everything he says is true. Perhaps everything I'm saying is false. You don't have scientific certitude about the existence of God. And I believe that this shared, perhaps, that all reasonable individuals, believers or unbelievers, should admit, or at least I will, opens up the door for conversations uh, like we have today. Um, and so that's my argument, and I appreciate listening. <laughs>
Kersey both reprehensibly and Dr. Kersey commit the same logical error. What Reverend Sibley does is say there must be this hierarchical chain, and I would use the term ground of being. He's correct that at some point something must just exist. There can't be something that literally pops out of nothing. There must be an uncaused cause. But various religions have come up with various theories for this. Instead of one being, it could be many beings, it could be a force or many forces. But he's correct. There is some at some point the hierarchical chain of causation. You must say, okay, there is just a quality of existence where something just exists. But then it could also be no supernatural reality. You know, physicists are looking at maybe that the universe, whether it's a universe or multiverses, whatever, it has just always existed. Instead of taking this quality and ascribing it to some supernatural reality, it's just that our physical reality is not contingent, but physical reality itself is has this quality. It is itself its own reality. So, it, yes, it's possible that there is a single all-powerful being that is the ground of being, but it's also just one of many other possibilities. And Dr. Corsi has correctly pointed out that the problem of evil makes it very problematic to believe in a single being that is simultaneously all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good. But that's just one out of an infinite number of possible religious realities. There are many possibilities of beings that are not perfectly all-good or perfectly all-knowing or perfectly all-powerful. And in fact, many theologians have themselves come up with solutions to the problem of evil to say, well, maybe there, you know, God is not perfectly all-powerful or perfectly all-knowing, and it's, and you know, we have created this artificial construct to come up with what must be this perfect being. Or some theologians have said, well, this God must be perfect in every way despite how that contradicts the realities of human existence. And so it's just one of many possibilities. Literally just knocking down one out of an infinite number of possible religious realities. Which leads back to my original point then. Uh, there could be many possible different grounds of being. There could be many possible religious realities. And so the answer is we just don't know which one it is. Which one of the, and again, it's not just one or two or three options. It's an infinite number of possible. Consequently, you don't need something 
to be pushing along a star as it moves through space. It'll keep moving until something stops it. There's no need to suppose or, or to think that there is a hierarchical series of causes because that's just not how causation works. The same point would apply to existence, keeping something into in existence, right? Uh, it's not as if uh, you've got to hold this desk to make sure it still exists, to keep it there, right? And to make sure it doesn't disappear. Existence presumably works the same way. You don't have to keep making something exist. It can just exist and it will exist on its own until someone comes along and chops it up or what have you, right? So uh, another uh, point that both uh, uh, Father Sidney and, and Dr. Rick have made has to do with the idea that we cannot be certain about whether or not a God exists. And I think that uh, depending on your concept of God, on a reasonable concept of God, that's, that's true. I'll grant that. Um, but you don't need that for knowledge. I mean, you, you can't be certain about much of anything. Uh, and, and you can't be certain that this table is here, right? I mean, imagine, this is an old philosophical you know, example, imagine uh, that there's some all-powerful being deceiving you about everything it possibly could. That's possible, at the very least, right? That doesn't mean that's a good reason to not believe that this desk is here. It's possible we're mistaken about it, but we know it's here, right? Uh, 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 as one of the lessons that, that philosophers drew from the failure of Descartes, if you're familiar with Descartes, no. Um, uh, uh, you, you can't, you, uh, uh, requiring certainty for knowledge is a dead end. It leads you to the conclusion we can't know anything. Uh, if you're going to hold that standard of knowledge, we can't know this table is here. And I think uh, the better lesson to draw from that is that we do know this table is here. Therefore, knowledge doesn't require certainty. Certainly, that's how we use the term knowledge anyway. Um, so I don't think you have to be certain. Another point that, that uh, uh, Dr. Swanson made, uh, uh, we're just talking about, I just talked about one possible being. Yes, that's true. Uh, but still, I think... Um, well, you know, as Dr. Swanson said, there's an infinite number of beings. We don't have that much time. We only have the room for a few hours. And so we'll narrow it down to the, the view, somewhat arbitrarily, to the view we kind of narrowed it down, I narrowed it down, to the view that's most popular in our culture, which is the God of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, the theistic God. And that's the one that's, that's typically said to be all powerful, all knowing, and perfectly good. And so... Uh, Let's give that for one day, I hope. That's my remark. But first of all, in, in looking at what uh, Swanson said, I think there are fundamental fallacies that I pointed out that if we look and we can't know what's inside of the mystery box, the mystery box would be all creation. God, by his definition, would not be in creation, but outside of the mystery box. So the very fact that the mystery box exists would presume there's something that would have brought it into existence, and then is keeping existence. It's a fallacy to put God as a supernatural ground of being inside of the mystery box, as we would investigate it, posit its existence like we would any other imaginary or potentially real figure. When it comes to his response to what I had to say about the ground of being, 
argument he actually made was science shows that there can be a number of causes that lead the universe to be in existence. Uh, linear causes, multiverse. Again, I'm not talking about anything linear. I'm talking about in the here and now, present, that there's a ground of being that I'm not describing any of its characteristics, that needs to be sustaining it in being. And this is a philosophical question more than a scientific question. So I think he's actually arguing against a linear perspective, which is not one that I assume or <coughs> propose. In regards to atheism and the arguments that uh, Dr. Parksy made, again, he was arguing basically a theodicy, that a good, benevolent, all-powerful God couldn't exist because of the evidential problem of evil. But that's not what we're arguing here. Does God exist? Is it possible that my, there's no rebuttal to what I had to say, even if he did, I'll respond to it, that, that denies that God exists itself. His primary argument is that God is, if he does exist, is not good, or he's not good, therefore he doesn't exist. That would be a different debate what the qualities of God are. We could say that it's quite possible there could be an evil God out there. Descartes posited that reality. But it doesn't mean, even if he's evil, that he is not the philosophical ground of our existence. But looking at the, the argument uh, of evil, looking at the, how God could tolerate evil, it's sort of a utilitarian calculus. There's no way the good could outweigh the evil of certain natural disasters. But yet, we believe that time continues into the future. We're not looking at it in the present moment or in 50 years. What about 1,000 years? What about 5,000 years? I can look at evil figures in the history of the world and good figures in the history of the world. Take an evil figure like Genghis Khan. We still see significant effects of his evil in the world. Well, certainly in certain areas. But then take St. Francis of Assisi, who lived 700 years ago. We can still see the good effects, I would argue, Evil in the world, even though it does cause damage, tends to turn it on itself over time, while good will continue to produce beneficial effects. Even if you don't buy that argument, the good that can accrue over time can indeed outweigh whatever evil comes in time, uh, and as a result could outweigh the evil, and could be a reason that God does permit it. There is a reason that God could indeed permit certain things. Why it is, not really sure. But his argument, his formula at the end, makes an assumption that God, or at least a good God, would prevent it. Maybe he wouldn't. That's an assumption that can be debated. So I'm begging the question there. It's something that we can discuss and that we can debate. But that's going to get into whether or not God in himself is good or evil. Um, and just sort of wrapping it up in his rebuttal about the universe um, and Newton's argument. The universe is moving, and Newton's argument about moving the universe. But that's linear. That's time, the universe moving forward. I can talk about a static reality in the present moment, not what is keeping things in motion, but the reality of inertia. We're talking about the existence of something in the present moment. Let's say it exists in a vacuum. We're still talking about created realities. All those things, very <laughs> important arguments that they both bring up, I would say that they are for different discussions at different times. But we're going to look at does God exist? I think the 
argument that Aristotle makes does remain the philosophical argument for God's existence.